Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Frederick, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Paul Gillingham about his new book, Unrevolutionary Mexico, The Birth of a Strange Dictatorship. Hello, and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much, Ethan. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. Before we start talking about this very excellent book, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to work on this project? I'm a professor of Latin American history at Northwestern University, and um, I came to work on this um, stretches really back to the 90s, and so it's a very long story, which is worth um, compressing. Basically, my undergraduate thesis was about Mexican history, and after I graduated, they gave me funds to go back and turn it into a book, and that took about 15 years longer than it was supposed to, but in the interim, I uh, met some interesting people and realized that as the pre crumbled around us, the one party state fell to pieces. Um, we really, as a, both as a country, but also as a profession, didn't have too many detailed answers as to how the um, one party state had ever actually worked. And it became increasingly um, interesting as you watched the meltdown, thinking, how did this ever work? And so I went back and did my um, defil on that and then um, worked on for the next um, 15 years until this book came out um, with the excuse that in between I produced the undergraduate thesis book, Qualtemoc's Bones. So it's taken a while and sometimes I wish that I'd abbreviated it round about 2009. Um, other times I think I was lucky to have the privilege of working slightly longer than most people get for their dissertation books. Well, it's certainly been worth the wait for us as readers, and there's so much added perspective you can have on it, the, you know, the further away you get from that collapse. Uh, it makes me think of all of those many works that came out in the 90s and, and late 80s on hegemony and questions about how the state had ever sort of built a, a controller popular following in the country. 
Yes. Um, I mean, the, the dominant um, framework of hegemony back from really the late 80s onwards in the really classic works of Mary Kay Vaughan, Gil Joseph, an entire generation, um, did ask this question of how did the core question of how does a revolutionary state manage to um, keep um, a revolutionary people on side as it increasingly moves away from what it says it represents. And um, the Gramscian framework of hegemony um, was um, um, a clear and, I think, insightful choice. You could have argued, had you rewound back a couple of generations, that it was a question of false consciousness. As Gramsci said, something along the lines of people not following their interests but being too thick to actually um, work it out. <laughs> Hegemony obviously deals with this problem, and the classic definition is rulers and ruled have a common language, which means that, in inverted commas, negotiations can replace violent clashes. And so while you might have conflicts of interests, in the end you work within the same discursive and political sphere, which means that you have a fundamental, a language with which to speak to each other. And so that was extremely important in the 80s and 90s. Um, it did run out as the history of Mexico did full stop um, in 1940, and that was for coinciding reasons of taste. Um, as we said before we started, um, Latin Americanists have a natural affinity for revolution, for most people, the Mexican Revolution finished in 1940, and so did the good bits. Um, and then laterally, um, in the 80s and 90s, there were very few archives um, available for post-1940 work. And so this was really insightful, but led us sort of up to the brink of modern Mexico, of the juncture from revolutionary Mexico into, in capital letters, what came next, rather than um, headlock into it. Well, this obviously segues into your book quite clearly, which has no shortage of either negotiations or violence, uh, to, to bring those two categories back in. Uh, to, to begin with your introduction, you argue that Mexico did not become post-revolutionary, or to use your book title, unrevolutionary, until the later half of the 1940s at sort of the earliest point. And this pushes back, like you had said, against previous literature that tends to date it around 1940 and you know, not too long ago in the scholarship, all the way back to 1920. Uh, to frame this argument, you argue that the time period marked a sort of transition from revolution to a phrase in a category which is not new for this book, but you use, I think, quite persuasively of dicta blanda. So for anyone in, who's listening who maybe works on Latin America but isn't a Mexican specialist, could you tell us a little bit about this term dicta blanda? why you use it, and perhaps what this pre that we keep talking about is. Okay, well, several good questions there. First of all, dicta blanda is one of these terms which, from a publisher's point of view, is a nightmare because it's um, relatively niche and people outside of Latin American studies um, or even outside of the modern period um, don't get it necessarily because it's a neologism, and it's a neologism of dictadura, dictatorship with the dura, hard, replaced by blanda, soft. And so the closest um, translations are sort of soft authoritarianism, um, soft dictatorship. And this is a controversial label um, 
in part because it's seen as overlooking the more um, violent aspects of the Mexican state after 1940, um, in part because um, a couple of people, um, like uh, most notoriously Agustin Pinochet, um, Chile's military dictator, um, used it to describe his own military dictatorship, which was exceptionally violent and repressive. Um, against this, the only answer is this is a flawed term, but come up with something better. And Dicta Blanda, precisely because it combines a balance of repressive violence with um, a sort of sceptical, hegemonic um, sway of a ruling class, and then the weakness of that ruling class, which paradoxically helps stabilize the state, because Mexico's rulers are forced to give ground when Mexico's ruled really care about several issues such as elections, such as massive corruption, etc. And so hence Dictablanda. And the only way you can sort of reject it out of hand um, is by rejecting a, um, a belief in um, sociological labelling. Um, and I think that we really should, as not just as historians, but as broad as social scientists and even commentators, um, we should take the risk of labelling things um, at the risk of sounding like Freedom House and saying, X is democracy and Y is dictatorship. <laughs> um, these are such flawed labels, but labels we need to be able to argue about things. And, for example, I think Dicta Blanda is useful right now looking at the outcome of Russia's elections from last week, because Russia in many ways looks a bit like a Mexico 60 years later, but without the clever mechanisms of rotation in power and without quite the same amount of, I don't want to say hegemonic delicacy, but hegemonic delicacy. If I'm thinking about both as dictablandas or at least as Mexico, I can sort of compare, contrast and think about what interests me. And so that's a rather tangled um, way into this term. As I say, punning neologism has a further example of being actually used by Mexicans themselves. And as for the PRI, that's the um, initials for the Revolutionary Institutional Party, about which P.J. Rourke once cracked. It brings together three of mankind's worst ideas in a single <laughs> label. Not bad, coming ideologically from different sides of the fence, but the Revolutionary Institutional Party, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, and hence PRI, um, ruled Mexico from 1946 through until 2000. And it was an incarnation, a development of two earlier one-party and um, single parties. And so effectively the PRI is a slightly protean single party which rules Mexico from 1921 until 2000. And those 71 years make it the third longest lived um, single party in uh, modern history, coming in behind the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and the Mongolian People's Revolutionary Party. Something, in short, worked in modern Mexico to keep this party afloat for so long, at the same time as there was swinging inequality 
And so the question for historians of Mexico going back to the 90s collapse has been, how did it work? And that's what my book is trying to grapple with. I think that that sets up one of the many central, one of the many important themes to the book, which is paradox, uh, a military that controls society without it being a military dictatorship or authoritarianism with significant traces of democracy still present. So we're, we're going to definitely focus in on these paradoxes of how do you institutionalize a revolution. Uh, but your book begins, uh, like many quality texts on Mexican history, with a history of the political economy of two particular states that you focus in on, of Guerrero and Veracruz. Your first chapter, Archipelagos of Power, Guerrero, outlines the salient features of political life in one of Mexico's poorest states. So what are some of the major features that you highlight in this chapter and what it tells us about some of the challenges of setting up a central government in Mexico during the 1940s. Guerrero is somewhere which the great Fernand Brodel would have recognized straight away in the sheer degree of geographic determinism. Brodel said, mountains make societies, they make rough and ready, unstable, violent societies. They're sort of... Um, a contrast to this fatter, easier life on fertile plains. And of course, anybody who's ever been to Guerrero, thought about it, etc., will recognize Guerrero is a large, dry series of mountains with a thin strip of um, tropical coastline. And this has determined so much of Guerrerense history because it makes it, first of all, very difficult to trade products in and out. It makes it very diff difficult to get repressive state forcing or indeed to run much of a state at all. And it makes it very easy, on the other hand, for either popular groups or caciques or local political bosses to enjoy really a surprising level of autonomy from any larger organization. And so Guerrero is fractured by mountains. And what that means in terms of modern history is that capitalism takes a very long time to get there. And while other parts of the country from the 1880s onwards, I think when you look at Mexico, I personally am sick to death of short centuries and decades, long centuries and decades, etc. I mean, we've had them really from the top of the Eiffel Tower. All of that said, if you want to think chronologically about modern Mexican history, and instead of having this short 20th century, 1914 to 2001. Thinking in terms of 1880-ish to 2000-ish as being a coherent period, the arrival, installation of capitalism, and what happens when the great battle between capitalism and communism is over, this is actually quite a good way to think about Mexico. The arrival of capitalism in the 1880s is attended upon intertwined with political stabilization, neither come to Guerrero. There's nothing there you can, or very little you can productively get out of most of the country. It's difficult to get resources, and there's a lot of mountains and people in one's way when one tries. And so Guerrero ends up being Mexico's Vietnam, a series of peasant armies that are very successful in driving back a central state, one with tanks and planes, helicopters, etc., precisely because 
it's a long way from anywhere. And it is set up structurally to favor either resistance or petty oppression. It could not be more different from the state you describe in your second chapter, a rich place, a poor state of Veracruz. In this chapter, Veracruz seems to be simultaneously two things to continue on on this paradox theme. It's both ahead of the curve. It seems to be doing things before other places in Mexico eventually do them. But it's also on a sort of downward slope where by the time uh, you're discussing Veracruz in your book, its best years are perhaps already behind it in terms of national leadership. So could you tell us a little bit about Veracruz during this time period and how we should understand it in the context of your book? Certainly. Well, we've had very recent um, familiarity in Tarne Propia of a very wealthy state um, being pushed into rapid decline and instability by um, poor leadership. And this is the story of Veracruz um, from the 1930s onwards. Now, as with Guerrero, I'm interested in the sort of 1880-1940 period as a baseline to then measure the change in this period, the mid-40s to mid-50s, which I see as being the critical pivot. Veracruz, as you point out, is the opposite case to Guerrero in terms of its wealth, in terms of how well communicated it is with the rest of the country, and in terms of the sophistication of its political system. Veracruz is wealthy because it's one of the most important ports in the world, going back to the 16th century. Veracruz is Mexico's main port. All of Mexican silver flows through there to Seville, to Europe, and through that to Asia. Veracruz, as such, is an exceptionally wealthy place. It's the centre of Mexico's export economy. And Mex- um, Veracruz is also um, blessed by having... Um, relatively well-watered, fertile coastal plains, um, quite a lot of springs, what they call the Tierra Templada. And Veracruz is good to grow an awful lot of things, amongst them cash crops, specifically and above all, really, sugar, down in the south, tobacco. And just to round off everything, Veracruz also has oil. And after the 1910s, This is an extraordinary contributor to the local economy. The problem is, if you're from Veracruz, that you have the combination of these very rich resources being fought over between um, quite powerful agrarian militants, a central state which increasingly is not very keen on quite powerful peasant militants, and a nexus of um, mafia families and um, crooked generals. And so Guerrero is unstable because it's very poor and difficult to get to. Veracruz, in a paradox, is also very unstable by the time you get to the 1940s because there's so much up for grabs there. And so there's such fierce competition between these various powerful groups to control it. One of the striking features of this chapter on Veracruz is the local version of, nat- of national culture. That Veracruz is, is obviously a part of Mexico and is Mexican, but is also particularly modern and perhaps has a special role in modernizing the rest of Mexico, which many Veracruzans view as backwards, or at least a certain class of Veracruzans do. 
And this reminded me of nothing else so much as turn of the century Barcelona, where many Catalan regionalists felt like it was their, their moral duty to civilize the rest of backwards Spain. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about this, this attitude and culture in Veracruz, at least among certain people. Because as you point out several times in the book, it is people from Veracruz who go on to run uh, the Mexican central state for years to come. Well, I think that's a really interesting comparison, actually. And of course, um, possibly the largest difference with Barcelona is um, that you do not have um, powerful anarchist groups um, that determine um, so much of Barcelona's history and through the civil war. Um, in Veracruz, instead, you have a more fractured um, and at the same time more sort of state-friendly left. Um, in terms of um, why people feel that um, being Veracruzano is something special, you have Veracruz's, I say, several centuries of being the port through which everything flowed in and out of North America of any significance. Secondly, Veracruz is the first place to which um, Mexican um, leaders will relocate when life becomes difficult in the center. So during the wars of the reform of the wars against the US, later during the revolution, governments in exile head first of all for Veracruz. And then lastly, because of the really good communications with Mexico City, good communications with the coast, Veracruz is also one of the first places to industrialize and that classic sort of startup business of any industrialization, the textile sector, really takes off in Veracruz. And with it, you get added on to Veracruz's sort of traditional um, self-belief, you get this strong cosmopolitanism. So the town hall in Orizaba is um, designed by, by Gustav Eiffel, he of the Eiffel Tower. How this all goes wrong in the later 30s and 40s is in some ways a real rebuttal of sort of overly structural um, explanations of history, an endorsement of how um, a few important actors can really wrench a, a state, a region, a country um, onto a different path. Veracruz, in inverted commas, should not have been in chaotic, violent instability in 1945, and yet it was. So this connects us very much to the next two chapters, which you've, you've already clearly established in the book that Mexico is far from a settled post-revolutionary uh, state by 1940. And your next two chapters look at this period of the mid uh, 1940s to to demonstrate how some beginning political arrangements are are developed in each of the two states. So your third chapter, Peasants, Presidents, and Carpetbaggers, follows, among other things, the uneasy governorship of Leva Mancia in Guerrero. So what does this man's term in office tell us about Guerrero specifically and Mexico more generally uh, during its transition to its unrevolutionary period? Uh, Leva Mancia and Governor General Baltazar Leva Mancia is an eminent priesta of that first generation because he manages to control and to some extent neutralize popular peasant um, politicians 
while at the same time learning that there are limits to what he can actually do without Mexico City stepping in. And so Leva Mancia's governorship, which runs from 46 to 51, is like a, a demonstration in carne propia, in the flesh, of what were called the reglas no escritas, the unwritten rules of what is and is not acceptable in Mexican politics. And he comes in encouraged to crush Mexico's, sorry, Guerrero's peasant movement. So he does. When he does it with too much enthusiasm, though, he's then reined in by the centre, threatened with firing, and only manages to save himself through an adroit combination of accommodation with the sort of peasant survivors, um, presenting himself as a new man who has a government printing press, who puts teachers into Congress, etc. And then finally, um, through um, an astute piece of nationalist theatre, which is his patronising the discovery of the bones of the last Aztec emperor. And so Leva Mancia really is emblematic of the first generation of post-1940 governors feeling their way through the emerging reglas no escritas, what can and cannot be done as a regional executive. There are a number of very interesting anecdotes here that we could talk about, like the uh, digging up of a, a supposedly real, but probably not real, Cuauhtémoc, uh, which, which I think you very entertainingly capture in this chapter. But I want to focus in on one particular term, which is your use of the word carpetbagger. As an American, this term surprised me because I have a very specific idea of what a carpetbagger is uh, in the United States context. So I was curious if you could talk a little bit about this phenomenon of northerners being called in to govern the states that are further south of them. And then secondly, you know, why you chose the, the term carpetbagger to describe them. Right. Well, first of all, how would you define carpetbagger? <laughs> I'm being I'm being quizzed here. I suppose I have that very um, American notion of it of of Reconstruction South in the United States after our Civil War. Uh, so the the term, it, it, in some ways, it made sense why you found it applicable here. But I, I'm not sure I'd seen that in the case of Mexico before of of these northern officials being called in to to tame or govern the South. I think um, that I chose carpetbagger because of this combination of. Um, sort of outsiders coming in, um, allegedly bringing both economic development, social development, and a new sort of rational, progressive approach to government, precisely in part doing away with or pushing back against some of the old barriers and divides of race. So there you have the sort of progressive outsiders, what have been called in another context, sort of revolutionary proconsuls. And then you have the reality, and that sort of ambiguity at the heart of the term carpetbagger, that these outsiders also come as sort of internal colonizers. And they're not always sort of um, benevolent liberal colonizers. They can be um, profoundly ambiguous, um, crooked even, and um, there is a gap between this sort of self-confident outside reformer, rational, developmental, etc., and this sort of old-style um, 
corrupt personalist clientelist rule. And it's that sort of disjuncture which made the term carpetbagger spring out for me. Um, and Balthazar Leva Mancia, of course, is in many ways, um, fits this description, because although he's got the legitimizing fact that he was actually born in Guerrero, he then leaves Guerrero um, very soon afterwards and says, look, I was born in Switzerland and left when I was two and a half. <laughs> Leva Mancia is more or less on the same career track. I'm not going back to Switzerland to try and take over that particular country. Leva Mancia, it's interesting you call him a northerner because, yes, he is really, he's close to the Sonorans. His mindset is more Sonoran, northern Mexico, progressive, business-like, etc. And yet, he gets into power because of the sort of hardball manoeuvrings of particularly thuggish local politicians working together with far-off, distant, northern power brokers. And he's in this um, situation where, while talking the language of development, he is overseeing um, brutal repression of actual sort of Gerarenses who have lived there. And he sails extremely close to being fired as being too repressive, too dictatorial. And too much of an outsider. But in the end, in a complex reversal of fortune, actually becomes um, one of Guerrero's um, most enduring uh, political figures. And so this is why I chose Carpetbagger. It seemed from everything from geography to idealism to that betrayed idealism and that divorce from local societies, well, sounded pretty Carpetbaggerish to me. <laughs> well, it's one of many interesting and provocative echoes or comparisons with the United States that appear in this uh, appear in this excellent book. I think I want to say thank you to that. I'm not sure. I'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so looking at your next chapter, the fourth chapter, Party, Peace, and Caciquismo, you look at what you term to be the nationalization of politics in Veracruz during the mid-1940s. So how did the federal government insert itself more into Veracruzino political life? And how did it begin to form what you term a Pax Priista? Right, well, it wasn't so much the national inserting itself into the Veracruzano as the Veracruzano inserting itself into the national. Mm. And here you get one of these um, extremely important sort of contingent single actors, who is Miguel Aleman, who is um, the son of a revolutionary general, but is emblematic of sort of modern state formers in that he's not a general, he's a lawyer, and so are all his friends' lawyers. And he becomes groomed for success by a conservative block of governors, led by none other than a very famous gunman and cacique called Gonzalo Inés Santos, Mexicanist will recognize. And Aleman is spotted by this group as talent in the mid-30s and sort of groomed for success for them, is back to become governor of Veracruz at, at a very young age. And then from there is backed to um, move to Mexico City and become the interior minister, which is the main job in Mexican domestic politics. And so it's not really the centre taking over Veracruz as Veracruz in the vehicle of Aleman, his cronies and his backers, actually takes over Mexico City. First of all, 
from the Interior Ministry and then subsequently from um, the presidency, which he occupies from 46 to 52. And as a great clientelist, Aleman reproduces sort of mini Alemans and Aleman clients who colonize Veracruzano government, whether it's as governor, whether it's as mayors, and also colonizes the federal government so that um, when he leaves, his successor is another Veracruzano. Adolfo Ruiz Cortines. Because Veracruzanos have sort of captured the federal government, though, they can then divert, again, in the finest clientelist fashion, resources back into their home state. And these resources stem from military power to crack down on rogue actors to massive subsidies for development projects, roads which really don't have that much rationale unless you live along them, but are built because Aleman is a hometown boy. And so Veracruzanos politically capture the centre and then use that to economically grow their state into a return to the economic powerhouse it had been 30 years before. These two chapters bring an end to the more regional specific segments of the writing. And from here on, as, it, as I understood it, the book isn't formally split into parts, but it seems like from here you're more interested in thematic questions or more uh, topical questions. So the fifth chapter, Elections, Fraud, and Democracy, makes very careful analysis of what I think many research find to be very mur- murky waters, which is elections in Mexico during this time period. And you argue that while mid-century Mexico can hardly be considered a thriving democracy, it was also not without a sort of bustling civic and political culture, or at least a very active one, of sorts in which popular input could actually shape election results and public policy, despite the fact that the elections were overwhelmingly uh, rigged or, or not exactly up to snuff. So could you tell us about this apparently contradictory political culture of public participation, but without exactly it being a democracy. Well, I mean, to move to um, U.S. comparisons, I mean, what's the U.S. but a federation of single-party states for much of its modern history, not? And so in those situations, what counts um, if you are, say, um, a Democrat in Texas in the 30s, in the period 40s we're looking at, um, the actual election is completely bygone conclusion. It's like a mayoral election in New York to our day. What counts are the elections inside the party. And this is a more, um, a less visible form of democratic competition. But just as it's the only game in town in so many US states for so much of their history, so it's the only game in town in Mexico for the period we're looking at. Elections inside the party. And these are easily overlooked in part because of our prejudices about Mexican electoral culture. But they are deeply competitive when they're allowed to be. And what this translates into is an inverse correlation. The less important the political job, the more competitive and the more representative it can be. In short, it's what one political scientist called the the cost of repression is just too high in terms of sustaining an unpopular local party hack as mayor than it is to just let whoever is broadly acceptable 
win the party primary elections, and then go on and govern. And so while elections at the federal level are pretty uncompetitive, elections inside the party, all the way up to deputies, really are. And when you get to the level of politics which people actually care about in Mexico, which is the mayor, the small town, parish pump politics, well, then you're looking at a very, very different um, scenario. And you're looking at elections which, if people care, and they don't always, apathy is something which you see in any voting system, but when people care about democratic competition, then quite often it happens. And the reason it happens is because the institutional mechanism is there and it's backed up by a popular veto. What does that mean? It means that if the central party or regional power broker tries to install a murderer, rapist, thief, whatever, as mayor, then there quite often will be blood. There will be riot. Riot is a very effective mechanism for vetoing that sort of thing. And so to wrap up, as long as you've got primary elections, which are ended precisely because of this in the 1950s, then you have elections which can be just as democratic as anywhere else in the world, but not beyond a certain level. Even when those primary elections are ended precisely for this reason, the cost of repression argument endures. You have regular elections, the way you don't in sort of serious authoritarian systems. There are no local elections in Pinochet's Chile. <laughs> but you do have them in Mexico. And through those, you have this well-established principle in that a local society might not be able to elect their favoured candidate, but they will reliably be able to block the accession to power of someone who is beyond the pale. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As someone who uh, lives in a city which is basically run by one party and is, and is currently voting amongst several candidates of that party, I'm a little jealous of that power to at least rule out your least favorite candidate. <laughs> I know. You look at it sometimes and think, I know that democracy, um, famous quote is, um, the worst of um, all systems bar all the others. Um, right. Yeah, when your finest aspiration is veto power, um, you do end up sort of clutching your head. But now, your answer, both the the writing in this chapter and the answer you had just given, I think really highlight the number of comparisons that you make between Mexico and the rest of the globe. And to me, an implicit argument of this chapter and others is that we as researchers really ought to de, de exoticize political life in Mexico that in many ways it's quite similar to other places in the world, that democracy in, in Mexico functions or authoritarianism functions in, in comparable ways to, to neighboring states. Am I, am I right in getting that sense from this chapter? Oh, I think you just actually summed up not just what I'm thinking at the moment about, <laughs> Mexico, but about Mexican history full stop. 
I think that we have exoticized Mexico to an extent that really gives us blinkers and means that we have overlooked the sheer cosmopolitanism of Mexican history, of Mexico as a country and a society. And so in our drive as academics for and the other, or as just members of uh, British or American public sphere looking for the exotic of this far-off country. So much gets lost in terms of the way so much of Mexican life resembles ours, and sometimes to a really disturbing level of bias. And so, I mean, one of the first um, observations you can make when comparing what are supposed to be the turbulent, crooked, violent politics of Mexico, is say, well, they didn't kill JFK, MLK, RFK, <laughs> Harvey Milk, etc. So if you want to talk about serious political violence, we should probably start in the US. In terms of Mexico as a violent culture, you should probably look at subjects like lynching, like my good friend Gemma Santa Maria does. Or the aspirations to gun control, or, in fact, levels of violence in large parts of Mexico across large parts of its history. If you spend much time driving around Mexico, as opposed to driving around Europe, relatively quickly you think, well, hold on, where are all the fortifications apart from, you know, the odd surviving monastery? Where are the city walls? And they're not there because compared to the incredibly bloody history on a centuries-long level, of Europe, of the United States, Mexico, counterintuitively, actually looks like a relatively unviolent place for much of modern history. And I think that we tell each other stories as academics in a society which revolve very much around the sort of um, prurient thrill of an exotic other. There is an exotic capital O anthropological other there, but they're rather different to how we imagine, and they're also just part of a broader story of a profoundly cosmopolitan society. And this is a theme, as I say, I've been thinking about a lot, um, really with, with increased vigour um, since since 2016. Um, but it's been with me for a long time, and I think another area you can very easily take aim at is the um, stereotype of the macho which isn't, of course, just foreign. I mean, Octavio Paz gets um, really excited about the idea of machismo, the machos being this sort of cultural, independent variable structuring a lot of the way Mexico has been and Mexicans have interacted. But again, if you move back from the exotic and start thinking, well, hold on a second. Um, you've got a track record of women political leaders, um, women intellectuals, women drug dealers, um, going back to the 16th century, which is difficult to actually match in the countries in which we sort of happily and sometimes slightly smugly sit. And so, yeah, I'm really glad you pick up on this desire to de-exoticize elections because I do want to de-exoticize Mexican political culture. And it's part of a broader belief that we would do well to de-exoticize a lot more of Mexico full stop. 
as I was reading through it, finding these many comparisons to specifically to U.S. political life, I couldn't decide if I was happy to find more democratic participation than I expected in Mexico or upset and, and distraught at the degrees of authoritarianism in uh, my own political culture. <laughs> I couldn't decide if it was a happy comparison or a sad one, but perhaps, perhaps it's both. Um, so to, to move on then to your sixth chapter, Law and Order in Mexico Profundo, you examine the rise and fall of violence and crime in Mexico as a measure of state consolidation. And in this chapter, you engage with many interesting methodological and analytical discussions, but I was most captured by your framing of violence by state and non-state actors as existing on spectrums. And the central spectrum of this chapter is the continuum between the military, pistoleros, bandits, rebels, and the way that individuals can sort of move through these categories uh, over time or sometimes in, in mere moments. So could you tell us a little bit about the spectrum and then how the PRI started to get a handle on violence? And I think you say it's not quite a monopoly, but it's at least a much more regulated market on violence by the end of the 1940s. I'm glad you said marked at the end of that, because I think that especially in a post-revolutionary period where there are a lot of any post-conflict period will give you the difficulty of having a lot of people who are relatively good at using small arms, at least, and have experience in doing it. And so you have this in Mexico after this extremely violent revolution. There are a lot of guns knocking around and a lot of people who use them. And in this, in the middle of Reconstruction and then in the Depression, a lot of people have one resource and one skill set. And that really is the resource of violence. And so the question is, how is it traded? And this is where the idea of a market of violence, which an anthropologist called Georg Elvert came up with, I think really is useful. You talked about a spectrum. You can imagine a hypothetical Mexican man born circa 1900, learned how to fight on one of many sides, doesn't really matter which, during the armed revolution of the 1910s ends up quite possibly at a loose end in the 1920s. What are they to do? Well, there's various career tracks. One of them might be, though, banditry. One of them might be as one of the rebels against successive um, regimes. But then at one point, you might also fall in with somebody who is um, acceptable to the state at the time and suddenly find yourself doing much the same thing but with a badge and a different label. You might think at a structuralist level, so plus ça change, uh, what's the difference? Well, the difference is in part the extent to which that violence is being channeled towards some form of state construction as opposed to just trading on the sort of free market of violence. And the difference also, though, is that labels count. And so even if you are a municipal policeman who has been a pistolero, is given a badge while their friend or boss is in office, it still actually counts that they are briefly state agents. And what you see through the period of the 40s and 50s is the badge, Sergio Aguayo called La Charola, the badge really is increasingly necessary to continue trading in violence. 
And to get the badge means going through at least some hurdles. In some cases, literally, I and mean, when the Veracruz sets up a police force and they insist that um, all future recruits have to be um, um, five foot two inches tall <laughs> or higher, um, these these are in some ways, you know, funny, but in other ways it's part of this standardization, regulation of violence. Doesn't mean to say there's a monopoly, heaven forbid. Doesn't mean to say all violence is state building, not at all. But it does mean that the sort of freedom of maneuver, this um, very wild west neoliberal market of violence is becoming more regulated. And so if you could finish off the metaphor by telling me who the sort of Ralph Nader of the market of violence is, <laughs> I'd be really pleased, but I'll have to think about that one. So that's what I mean about the spectrum. It's there, people move along it, but increasingly the numbers of people who are at the totally illegitimate, badgeless end of the spectrum are thinned down. Your next, the seventh chapter, Development, Corruption, and the Demands of the State, moves from violence and looks at development and what you term as social engineering projects as a measure of state consolidation. And there are some projects that are remarkably successful by your accounting, especially infrastructure and public health projects. And others, it seems like, could only be categorized as dismal failures, such as adult literacy programs, which I... I was shocked by the level of violence and hostility that adults had to being put in literacy programs, as well as uh, requirements of mandatory conscription. So what role did these sorts of projects play in consolidating a, a post-revolutionary or unrevolutionary state during this time period? Well, Mexico is seen as or portrayed as um, an exceptionally well-governed economy in this period, in which development plans Mexico is sort of an exemplar for the way middle-income and low-income countries can modernize. And Mexico has some extremely convincing intellectuals making the case, and really world-class economists like Victor Urquidi, who actually chairs a third commission um, at Bretton Woods, when the sort of entire post-war international system is being founded, Urquidi chairs a commission which is all about development, writing development into the goals of the World Bank, the IMF, and the United Nations Charter. And so there is this real intellectual contribution, and there is substantial on-the-ground development of the factories, of the roads, of the power stations, of the, fa- of the factories. Um, the question is to what extent the ruling party is actually responsible for all that. Uh, and the answer is uh, not as much as they themselves would claim. This sort of development is happening on a global scale, being the United States' next-door neighbour in this specific case is actually a bonus. And if you look at the performance of the Mexican economy um, from World War II through the early 70s, in comparative terms, it's more or less the same as everywhere else. This still doesn't stop, though, whether it's the responsibility or achievement of Mexican policymakers and leaders or not. This rapid change in 
the fundamentals of an economy from really changing people's lives. And with new roads, commercial agriculture comes new inequality, certainly. But with it also comes some projects which people really have problems opposing. And you just listed them. Hospitals, drinking water. There's this sort of holy trinity of development anywhere, which is give me sanitation, give me drinking water, give me electricity. And the Mexican government managed to oversee precisely that across much of Mexico in the 40s and 50s. One of the interesting points that you make in in this, and it comes up more in your eighth chapter, talking about a revolution, which is that almost as important and perhaps as important, you can tell me, uh, as these infrastructure projects is a sense that Mexico is developing and modernizing, that the Mexican state is projecting an image of progress and that the, the narrative of progress is almost as important as the progress, as the roads themselves. Um, you argue that Mexicans hardly take official messaging as unqualified truth. They're not mere sheep just digesting the official news. But there is a sort of consensus um, to be to be controversial, a sort of hegemony of ideas that is come to uh, over the course of this book. So could you tell us a little bit about those ideas that develop uh, in your eighth chapter and what sorts of ideas were held by Mexicans, both uh, the elite political class, all the way down to more common Mexicans just consuming the mass media developed during this time? Well, Mexican leaders talk a lot about the revolution in this period, and they have an increasing number of vehicles to get that message out to as many Mexicans as possible. And so In 1947, you have the first TV broadcast in Mexico, and it's broadcasting the presidential report. And Mexican politicians take advantage of this media, which is run by monopolies, both in radio and TV, and to some extent controlled in print by a paper monopoly. They use it very much to talk about a revolution and about how Mexicans are experiencing the benefits of the revolution. That's clear. The fact that you have enthusiasm for parts of their work, though, is a correlation, not a cause. I think we've traditionally really overstated the um, extent to which everyday Mexicans actually bought into the talk of the revolution. It was there. It was omnipresent. It had a certain level of belief. And you can see that in the sort of mirror image of a phrase you will find over and over again in letters of protest. It really is a trope. People say, as they write in to the health minister or the minister of gobernación, etc., the revolution never arrived here. This means two things. One, a lot of people feel they were cheated. Two, they feel that somebody somewhere else wasn't cheated and that the revolution did exist. So you've got a certain amount of belief and you've got a lot of mechanisms for pushing that belief. But Mexican politicians use this new flood of media to talk about other things to justify what they do. They talk about democracy. In fact, the first line of the founding statement of the Partido Revolucionario Institucional is Mexico is a democracy. Okay. 
And they also talk, and this is the least controversial, the language of development. And development is tangible, and development, people see the projects on newsreels. It seems sort of ideology-free. It is something that has demonstrably happened. There is a factory down the road, and there is a road to get there, and you may be able to buy palm, um, palm olive Colgate's latest toothpaste at the end of it if you live in a small town, etc. People actually see development all around them. And telling that story of development as a product of the revolution meets political stability, meets joined-up governing, this is a very powerful story. And I think is far more influential in many places than talk of a revolution whose fruits just seem to be absent. I think you conclude one of your earlier chapters by saying that you don't need to be a law and order ideologue to be grateful that there's less political violence and electricity in your house now, that that those sorts of things would be appealing to quite a number of people. Yes, and exactly how they got there and whose responsibility, whose achievement it is, um, is in some ways secondary. There's this, speaking of spectrums, I have a sort of spectrum of popular responses to this single party. Um, resignation, resistance, approbation. And people quite often move along those very fluidly. And there's a classic story of Octavio Paz's divorce lawyer who was asked which way he'd voted. And he said, well, of course, I, I voted for the, um, the PAN, the Christian Democrat opposition, and I crossed my fingers that the PRI would win. <laughs> I think a lot of people were in that situation. And I think in part it's because there was a rough and ready stability, which was in part managed by the PRI and which enabled this development which, whether on a macro scale of electric power or this very local scale, I have a generator, a corn mill, sanitation, is there and which is then visible in other things people really care about, which is how many people are in the parish books as having died of, name your bacterial disease, Mm -hmm. what's the infant mortality rate, did your father live past 45 years old? All of this is starting to kick in. All of it correlates with the pre-being in power. And some of it is caused by the pre-being in power. And this is sort of an ideologically neutral. People get that. This brings us to your final chapter, the ninth chapter. Why Mexico did not become a military dictatorship. And you do a couple of things in this chapter. You provocatively challenge accepted narratives of early demilitarization of Mexican society, that very early in the 1920s and 1930s that the military left politics. You very much challenge that. But simultaneously, you also argue that the Mexican state became fundamentally civilian run by 1950. So again, we have a sort of paradox where you're pulling in in what could be different directions, but I think they, they come together in a very coherent narrative. So could you tell us how did the Mexican military find itself both in the background, but also in a very pleasant niche of a background? Well, that's an extremely good question. In short, the army and the um, Mexican government since 1940 
a centerpiece of the stories they tell about themselves has been that Mexico is exceptional precisely because, as opposed to the rest of Latin America and large parts of the rest of the developing world, the military stayed out of politics. They were honest, they were barbarian, and they were patriotic. They were strictly, rigorously professional. And the core of that was politics was not their business. Some of the way that actually kept that story alive was through meddling in politics, through censorship, (laughs) um, which is a good start to the more complicated story behind it, which is that the military, as you pointed out, were deeply politically engaged all the way through the revolutionary period, understood as going to the end of the 40s. Carnes took it as his key job, not being agrarian reform, not dealing with ill-humoured conservative governors, but just keeping a lid on the army. That was his number one goal in life. And the army is still the agency that can basically make or break national and regional and even village political leaders. And you can demonstrate that time and time again. There are sort of localised mini-coups where um, each state has a zone commander, a military parallel for governor. Really, with, with fair regularity, that military governor disposes of the actual civilian governor. The military has garrisons in one out of every five Mexican counties. They are the law. The military we saw from the intelligence documents, which are declassified in the early noughts, actually, key generals flirted with military takeovers of power, not just in the 20s, which we know about, the 30s, which we suspect. Um, The 40s and 50s, this successful story of no the military have renounced power, well, we now can see quite clearly they hadn't. Um, there was an extremely, something very, very close to a coup in 1948. There were rumours again in 52, 61. So you do have a political army. The question then is, what's different in Mexico? Why don't they, like political armies elsewhere, take over? And there's two reasons there's the, the sort of predictable one, which if you couldn't find Mexico on a map, you would still conjecture, which is that they were um, bought off, not to put too fine a point upon it. And yes, so they were. They were bought off both with direct cash payments, but also with opportunities to um, use their clout to um, set up monopoly businesses in the areas they controlled. They were allowed to graft. Being a general was a way to make a very good livelihood. And you could predict that. But what you might not be able to predict was there was also a group of generals who were dedicated to making sure that a group of generals never ran the country again. And this is where Mexico really becomes quite exceptional. You have, from the 40s and 50s, these key sort of um, transitional years what I called an informal Senate of generals led by two, well, three actually, military ex-presidents, um, Abelardo Rodriguez, Manuel Avila Camacho, 
and most importantly of all, Lazaro Carnas, who gather together in sort of papal enclaves, not to choose presidents, but to choose that generals over and over and over again will not be president, will not launch coups. And so this is one of the great paradoxes. You have soldiers keeping soldiers out of the presidential palace, not in a factional way, but in a good, living up to its name, institutional way. And that's extraordinary. That is unique. And that is purely Mexican. That That is very remarkable. Um, the some, There are several key moments in which it seems as though Mexico could have gone down a different direction. And it's one of them is when Miguel Alemán is dealing with a threat of coup by generals. And one of his solutions to them is exactly what you described, giving them promotions in the military, giving them financial offers, giving them more political influence in local politics. And then, of course, as you state in here, the military basically gains or regains its, its fuero rights, its own independent judicial process where no one in the military is really forced to undergo civilian inspection or, or punishment. And it made me think of nothing so much as Spanish military culture in the 19th and the 20th century, where many a pronunciamento is at least partly motivated by desire for promotion or better estates by junior officers. And I'm curious why that didn't happen in Mexico. That is why, why the threat of coup wasn't used more often in Mexico to get these obvious rewards, which were possible. That's a really good question, because of course, there are distinct similarities between um, 19th century and sort of military political culture in Spain and in Mexico, at the heart of which is the pronunciamiento. This idea that a really quite small portion of the military can use, um, in some ways, a holy token, a, a, a virtual coup with its pronunciamiento, its manifesto, as a way to bargain for a bigger slice of the pie. This happens in Mexico as well. Where is the rupture? Why does that stop in Mexico after the revolution? Um, I think this is where you get the inoculating effect of apocalyptic revolutionary violence. Pronunciamientos mm. are viable. The entire revolution in some ways starts off as a series of not pronunciamientos, but the same idea of a very small amount of violent actors declaring themselves rebels, hopefully in the middle of nowhere, and waiting for a domino effect to kick in. It is sort of focal theory of guerrilla warfare before it's invented. Unlike the focal theory of guerrilla warfare, though, it tends to work very, very quickly. You get this chain reaction of violence, whether it's in 1910 or 1923 where very quickly it stitches up to national conflict. The people we're talking about grew up through that. And I firmly believe, and belief has to be part of it, because unfortunately these soldiers are not garrulous. And if you ever have problems getting to sleep, then Carnes's autobiography is a sovereign remedy. <laughs> it's so boring, but it is quite clearly strategically boring. It is boring by intent. Very little ever, ever is let slip. With intelligence archives, we now get a little bit more insight into thought process. But I have a very strong belief that the experience of the revolution proved inoculating 
for many key actors afterwards whose goal went back to being that of the Habsburg emperors. Just keep the lid on. Don't try and do too much. Just keep the lid on. And part of just keeping the lid on is keeping the military out of the presidential palace. This brings me to the question I wanted to ask about your conclusion, which is which comes next in the book, where you highlight many of the themes, and one of them is this tension between contingency and and you've you've referenced Brodel, so now I'm, I'm going to bring up determinism. This question of how much of what you describe in this book was sort of inevitable by dynamics like a generation of generals who lived through extreme violence and are unwilling to to risk another outbreak like that, and how much of the changes that you describe in this book are due to contingency, such as Cardenas personally deciding to be opposed to military rule. Um, how set in stone do, are some of the changes that you highlight in this book, and how many of them do you think could have gone in different directions, uh, such as the, the changes in violence, the changes in development, the changes in national political culture? I think that... Um... This question, which of course you'd like several hours to get lost in, um, but I think contingency actually is quite important. And I think there are two sets of contingent actors. There's the ones we can see. Carnas is the obvious example because Carnas does actually stop a major breakdown of politics several times in the um, period after his presidency. He stops a coup. He stops re-election. He stops Miguel Alemán in the mid-50s from sort of engineering um, a military candidate who would have been pretty puppetish um, for the next presidential period. Carnas actually works to defuse um, radicalism inspired by Cuba. You can see in Eric Zolov's recent book. Carnas stops the Latin American sort of revolutionary left of the 60s from ever really gaining ground. So Carnas is a veto player, critical to this sort of centrism which characterizes Mexico after 1940. The other major contingent actor, of course, at the visible level, is Miguel Aleman. Aleman is a chancer, an opportunist, a crook and an extremely sharp operator. And you can see with his dealings with people like Leva Mancilla, how he is capable of both making a personal profit and a sort of public contribution by managing places like Guerrero so that they never wholly break down. So you have there those two most visible, most influential leaders. But then you also have the contingency of villages whose names no one will ever remember outside of that village where one or two people on election day stood up and said, enough of this. There is no way we'll accept Fulano de Tal as mayor. Who's with me? Pick up whatever you've got, your machete, or whatever. Come with me. We're going to town hall. We're going to take over. We're going to install a popular government. And they do time and time again, enough of them to where you have this popular veto power, which 
bizarrely works in the same direction as the veto power at the very top of Karna Salaman <laughs> to maintain a system which is tolerable for a critical mass of people. And so, yes, while you can come up with an awful lot of structural explanations, I think the contingency of human actors inside those structures, at the top, Karna Salaman, a handful of lesser known people, at the bottom, people who outside their villages will never be known, really does actually change history towards this ambiguous, stable, strange dictatorship that goes on to last for five decades. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And I have to recommend this book to any listener interested in either 20th century Mexico or in these broader questions, which are pertinent to any Latin American specialist of politics, development, violence, and and the meaning of democracy and democratic participation. But before we go, could you tell our listeners what project you're either working on now or, or comes next for you? What can we look forward to? Well, first of all, Ethan, um, thanks very much for those flattering words and for the invitation. It's been a real pleasure to have a talk. And um, what I'm working on now is a history of Mexico um, since, since 1511, um, which I'm aiming to complete by next autumn, which is going to be rather long and hopefully not rather tedious. Um, <laughs> I would like it to be a book which people who are not specialists like you and me actually read in reasonable numbers. Um, and it's a combination of, um, of storytelling chapters, narrative chapters, which drive this five-century story along with um, explorations of the facets, I think, are really key. And so Theodore Zeldin, um, his books about um, 19th century France, talked about the need to look at periods of history and societies as though you were sort of walking around somebody's head, looking at all the different angles. And you can't, as a historian, look at all the different angles. But you can take one period, one place, and try and look at it sort of prismatically from several points of view. And so, for example, at the moment, I'm having a torrid time in the 18th century. But the 16th century, which seems in retrospect quite clear-cut, after telling the story of the unconclusive or unconcluded conquest of the 16th century, the sort of indigenous civil war, um, I then thought, okay, so what do I really think is the are the most important um, facets there? And I thought immediately of obviously mass dying through European uh, microbes, old world microbes, um, conversion, um, religious conversion on a massive scale. And so then I dedicated one chapter to each of those. And I'm hoping that this sort of approach means that it's not going to be anything like comprehensive. It's going to be idiosyncratic. But then Mexico prides itself on being idiosyncratic. Hmm. And so I hope that it might actually fit well its, its subject. Well, I'm very excited for it. Well, thank thank you. you again for your time today, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Ethan.